Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. I want to invite you to grab your Bible or your mobile device and open it to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. We're going to be in chapters 26 and 27 tonight, not all of it, but through it. Um, And we're going to talk about the cross tonight in our Bible study. Um, So I invite you to open up your Bible at this time to that place as we get into it. Now, the text that we're in as we come into chapter 26, really it highlights the last two days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it contains these chapters, all of the final events leading up to Jesus' trial his betrayal, his crucifixion, all the way up until his resurrection. And probably, if you were to boil it down, the content of these two chapters is probably the most important, most impactful of everything that the Bible has to say. Every event in human history was moving towards this moment, and every moment in human history has been affected, touched, or changed by this moment. It is the epicenter of what the Bible is all about, this moment where Jesus lays down his life upon the cross. Now, every couple of years, you'll see that there is some kind of a movie or a book, something that is put out there that explores the idea of time travel. You know, I remember growing up seeing the movie The Christmas Carol for the first time and seeing Scrooge taken back in time to see a version of his younger self, you know. And then remember Bill and Ted's their excellent adventure and getting into the telephone booth and going back through history. But I think really the, 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 the core of it all was back to the future. There's never been anything that's come close to a time travel saga that touches Michael J. Fox and Doc Brown and, you know, the, the, the DeLorean time machine and the whole thing. But it's such a fun concept, and that's the reason it keeps coming back, because when you think about time travel and if that were actually something that were possible... The issue is always the ripple effects. If you could go back in time and change something, what are the after effects, the ripple effects of what that would mean down the road? And so if you were to be able to do that just for the sake of conversation, if you would go back in time and you were to just clip out the two days that we're studying in Matthew chapter 26 and 27, it would change all of the world. I don't know if any of us would be in existence here still today if you were to do that. It is that important. It is that critical. It connects to every part of the Bible, to every part of life, every part of religion, conscience, every part of existence. And you could literally preach thousands of sermons on these two chapters of scripture and you would only scratch the surface. But I want to skip through portions of this and I want to preach to you tonight about the call of the cross. And so if you're there, Matthew chapter 26 and beginning in verse one and get ready to jump quickly. It says this, it says that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said unto his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover and the son of man is betrayed to be crucified. And so Jesus sets the stage for where we are in terms of the coming to a close of his earthly ministry. Now, this announcement or this timestamp is followed by, if you were to read it successively, first of all, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and then Jesus celebrating that last Passover supper with his disciples where he instituted the communion ceremony for the very first time. That's what takes place. But then if you look over at verse 31 of chapter 26, I want to read again there. It says that then Jesus said to them, this is after the communion supper, He said that all you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written that I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. 
But after I am risen again, I will go before you unto Galilee. Now, Jesus drops a bomb on his disciples and basically says, hey, all you guys are going to abandon me tonight. You're all going to leave me alone uh, as it is written in the scripture. Now, Peter, it says that he answered and he said unto him, though all men should be offended because of you, though all should forsake you or run away because of you, Yet I will never be offended. And Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto you, that this night, before the cock crows, before the rooster crows, you will deny me thrice, deny even knowing me three times. Now Peter hears this, Jesus, you've taken it too far. Peter has a habit of rebuking Jesus. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with you, yet will I not deny you. And likewise said also all the disciples. And so they have this interchange where Jesus explains to them what's going to happen. Well, it is quickly followed by Jesus going into the garden of Gethsemane, where he takes Peter, James, and John apart with him. He leaves them about a stone's throw behind, and he retreats by himself deeper into the garden where he begins to agonize over the sacrifice that he's about to complete and fulfill. It's a famous passage of scripture where Jesus prays for deliverance. He asks his father that if there's any other way that he could be delivered, that he would make that known. He says, I don't want to drink this cup that is in front of me right now. I don't want to go through this painful ordeal. I know what it means, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally. I know what it will cost. I know the weight of it. I understand it and I don't want to do it. But nevertheless, Jesus surrenders and he says, not my will, but your will be done. It's in the backdrop of Jesus praying this three times, surrendering his will to the Father, that Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, shows up with a band of soldiers and Jesus is then handed over into their custody. And then we pick up in verse 50 of chapter 26. It says this. It says that Jesus said unto him, unto Judas, the betrayer, he said, friend, wherefore art thou come? Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand. Now we know from another gospel account that this was none other than Peter the rock who draws his sword and it says that he struck a servant of the high priests and cut off his ear. Wow, he's a great shot, isn't he? Don't give Peter a gun. Then said Jesus unto him, put up or drop your sword, put it in its place. For all they that take the sword will perish with the sword. This is not the way, this is not what's going to happen next. Don't you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that this must be? He says, Peter, we are not going to resist right now. We are going to embrace. We're going to move forward. Put up your sword in its place. Now watch this. It says, in that same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now here it is, verse 56. Then it says, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. When fighting was no longer an option, now they leave. Well, Jesus moves with these band of soldiers and he goes and he begins to stand trial First before Pilate, then before Herod, and then before Pilate again, also being questioned by the chief priest during that time, Jesus stands the trial of his life. Then Peter denies the Lord three times, even as Jesus foretold that he would, and ultimately Jesus has moved to the cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he is crucified. He's plated with a crown of thorns, he is mocked and scourged, he is nailed to a Roman cross, and he is there left to bleed, hanging between two thieves. And then the last verse I want to read to you is chapter 27, so flip to the next chapter, all the way over to verse 50. After Jesus endures the cross, it says that Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, 
he yielded up the ghost. So Jesus moves through his trial, he endures the entire thing, and then he cries out with a loud voice, and then he cries, and it is over. Now I want to add two verses to what we just read that come from the other Gospels. One is from John chapter 19, verse 17, and it says that Jesus, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I like the way it says it in the New Living Translation. It says that he carried his cross by himself, that Jesus was the one who carried his cross. Now, we'll talk about it later. We know Simon of Cyrene bore it under with him for a season, for a moment, but Jesus carried his cross by himself. And then the other verse I want to add to this is John 19, verse 30, where it just tells us there that when Jesus received the vinegar, he cried, he said, it is finished, and he bowed the head, and he gave up the ghost. Matthew tells us that he cried. John tells us what he said, that he cried with a loud voice, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. So I want to talk to you guys tonight about the call of the cross. Now, Christianity has rightly been called the religion of the cross, and that makes a lot of sense if you know anything about the faith that we profess. Now, Because, first of all, the cross that Jesus bore. We understand that the crucifixion of Christ is central to our identity. What we believe, and even the the kingpin, really, of our salvation is upon what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. But that's not the only reason why Christianity is called the religion of the cross. The other one is because of what Jesus said. And it's recorded in all three Gospels, and it's one of the most important things that Jesus spoke when he invited humanity into a relationship with himself. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says that Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And what Jesus did is he took this idea, this concept of the cross, and he took it off of just what he would perform and accomplish in Jerusalem, and he placed it upon all of those that would become followers of him. Now, what's interesting is that I read the account in Matthew's gospel, and it tells us there that he spoke this to his disciples. But if you read the account in Mark's gospel... It says that he said to the people and to his disciples. So he expands the audience. And then when you read it in Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus said to them all. So it becomes more expansive. At first you almost have an out. But Jesus says to everyone, if you want to come after me, then you must take up your cross and you must follow me. Now, what did Jesus mean when he put it to us that we must take up our cross and follow him. Sometimes people get into these petty arguments about things that really don't matter uh, that much in scripture. You know, like the color of someone's robe or, you know, some of the dimensions of some of the buildings in the Old Testament. But one of the, the more foolish things that people sometimes can debate and discuss is what the cross of Jesus actually looked like. You know, most people traditionally believe that it was as we see, you know, the vertical long beam and then the horizontal short beam, that shape of a man, you know, you understand the cross. But there are some that say, no, it wasn't actually a cross. The Roman means of crucifixion was actually a pole. And it was just like, you know, the Bible says a tree. And so it was like a tree trunk and his hands were tied up over his head. And people get into debates about something that really at the end of the day doesn't matter. We don't know what the cross of Jesus Christ exactly looked like. But here's what we do know. We know that the cross literally comes in thousands of forms. In fact, for every human being alive, the cross looks just a little bit different. For Abraham, the cross that he had to bear was the call to sacrifice the only son he had that he loved because God said, take your son that you love and offer him there as an offering to me. Now, we know ultimately he did not lose his son and he didn't offer his son, but he went through all of the motions and emotions as though he did. That was 
his cross, the cross that he had to bear, the great man Abraham. We know that Job was handed a cross, and his cross looked a little bit different. His cross was the call to enduring trust in God in spite of unimaginable loss and pain without any reason or explanation for it. And he had to endure that, giving honor to the Father, defending his reputation, and holding faith in spite of a disconnect between his intellect and experience and the God who he knew loved him. That was the cross that Job had to bear. For David, the cross looked different. For David, the cross meant paying a very high price in order to obtain a crown that to wear would be a very high price. And if you've ever been in any form of leadership, especially at a higher level, you understand exactly what that means. And so David suffered being prepared for that position, and then David suffered in that position, being the leader of the nation. Is self-denial. It represents a laying down of my will, my thoughts, my intellect, my plans, my very life, and offering that to God in sacrifice, giving him all. That's what the cross represents, self-denial, even unto death. Now, you say, why is Christianity the religion of the cross? Why would God put that on his followers that if we want to follow after him, that we must take up our cross of self-denial, knowing that it means unimaginable pain and suffering that we don't understand? There's two main reasons and probably thousands more. But the two big ideas or reasons for the cross is number one, because part of God's work in our lives is to make us like him. And when we become like him, he is a self-sacrificing, self-denying God for the sake of someone else. And so as we're made like him, part of what we are conformed into the image of is the image of his death, his cross, his self-denial. And so part of it is the transformation work inside of us. That's part of the reason. The other reason for the cross is not just the transformation, becoming like him, but it's even bigger, and that's this, is that it's in the cross or at the cross, our cross, that we identify with him. See, you can know a lot about God without the cross, but you can't really know God without the cross. The cross, our cross, is the place where we really come into intimacy with him. I want to read to you a, a passage from Philippians where the Apostle Paul describes what this looked like in his own life and how this identifying with Christ really works. It's Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Paul says this. He says, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, he's not talking about knowing about Jesus. He's talking about knowing Jesus, having a close communion relationship with him, intimacy. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung. I don't have to explain what that is, do I? Why? That I might win Christ. In other words, Paul said, as I lost more, of what I was and had, I gained more of him, who he is, and in gaining more of him, the things that I had became worth less, so much less that he calls them dung. And then he says, he goes on and he says, and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, my performance and deeds, but that which is through the faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now listen to Paul's concluding sentence. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There is a level of intimacy that we experience with God that only comes as we take up our cross and walk with him through our seasons of suffering. 
And that's why Jesus said that you can't follow me and really know me unless you're willing to take up your cross. You can't be made like me and you can't fellowship with me to the level of love that I want you to understand and know in your life. The cross is essential. So Christianity, this faith that we have, is an invitation. God is inviting us to be, first of all, reborn. And that happens at the cross. Not our cross, but Jesus' cross. We are made new, forgiven of our sins, and brought into relationship with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. At that point, we are then remade, where he conforms us into his own image, and we learn self-denial because he's a self-denying God. We're remade, and then finally, we relate to him. We come into fellowship with him and understand this, that all three of those things, the rebirth, the remaking, and the relating have one common enemy. Do you know what it is? It's self. Self will eclipse all three of those great works from happening in your life, and the cross is the remedy for self. That's why the cross is as critical as it is. So what is the call of the cross? What does it mean to embrace our cross? What does the cross speak to us in terms of what it means to take it up? And so I want to share with you briefly these thoughts concerning the call of the cross. What does the cross call to you and I? First of all, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is that the cross calls us to embrace it, to embrace it. Jesus said, take up the cross, and so the call in that is to take it or embrace it unto yourself. The word embrace means to take to yourself, to run toward, and to fully receive. Now, I believe that this is the hardest part of the entire call, because it is so against our human nature to embrace or run to something that's caused us pain and death. It's a symbol of death and self-sacrifice. It's offensive to us. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the cross is offensive because it speaks against our intellect, against our will, against our personal desires. It's against our reason. It's against our freedom. We feel like we're giving something up. It's against our very nature. We're selfish by nature, and so by nature we resist something that comes against self. And understand that this is universal. This even happened to Jesus in his humanity. That's why he went through the agony that he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wrestled over what he was about to go through, and and it was so agonizing to even the Son of God that the Bible tells us that he began to sweat drops of blood. His pores and capillaries began to burst because of the stress of what it was going to be. It took that much pressure, it was that much of a fight to embrace the cross that he came into the world to bear. And if it was that crazy for the Son of God to embrace it, then it's no wonder that it's a difficult thing for humanity, for us fallen natures, fallen beings, to embrace the cross. Now, I want you to see this and understand how significant this is. I want to look at Peter again, back in chapter 26, verse 33, that passage that we read uh, when, when Jesus told them that every one of them would be offended that night because of him. Peter said to Jesus, he said, Lord, everyone else might be offended. They might all forsake you and leave, but I'm not gonna. Even if I have to die with you, and Jesus, again, saying that you're going to deny me three times before morning. Peter says, no, I will die before I deny. That's what he said. Now, look again at chapter 26, verse 51. Because when when it came to, when it came time for Jesus and Peter to stand together, Peter doesn't stand with Jesus. But I want you to see why Peter doesn't stand. What what was Peter's weakness? What happened? Look at it again. It says that one of them that were with Jesus, that's Peter, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now listen to Jesus, because this this is critical. This is huge. It says, Jesus said to him, put up again your sword into his place. For all they that take the sword will perish with the sword. And then Jesus says, this is the way it's got to be. We are not going to resist what's about to happen. We're going to embrace what's about to happen. And as soon as Peter and the rest of the disciples 
We're faced with the prospect of not fighting to resist the cross, but walking towards and embracing the cross. They found that they had no strength to stand at all. And their instinct and their action was to run. That's what they did. They dropped their sword. Well, you mean we're not going to resist this? No, we're, we're going through this. We're going to take up the cross. And it said, they, they, no, no, no that, that's not part of the deal. Now, I want you to understand, when Peter said, Lord, I will die for you, Peter meant it. I believe he did mean it. He meant it fully. And Peter was willing to die but he was not willing to die embracing the cross. He was willing to die resisting the cross. And he was. He pulled out his sword. He was ready to go. The chances of Peter winning against a band of Roman soldiers, he was going to die that night. And he says, I will die to resist the cross. And sadly, our nature would rather die than embrace the cross. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. We don't resist the cross. We embrace the cross. See, Disciples, that's us. People, that's many. All, humanity, universally, are strong enough to resist the cross, but not strong enough to embrace the cross. And so I ask you the question, what do you do when your young teenage or even maybe older teenage daughter, it comes to that she has an eating disorder? How do you handle that? What do you do when you have a child or someone close to you who you find out has chosen an alternative lifestyle, something that to you is the sum of all fears, what do you do when you find that your spouse is going through a season where they're selfish and conflicted and detached or maybe controlling? What do you do when sickness comes into your life, whether in yourself or someone else? Or when you come to the end of a job, which means the destabilization of your whole life. What do you do, young person, when you hear and find out that your parents are getting a divorce? And it means the upheaval of everything that's been stable, everything that you've known in your life. What do you do, college student, when the one that you thought was the one breaks it off and says, no, I, I, I don't feel the same way about you as you do about behaviors. I want to try to do everything I can to try to avoid what's in front of me because my, not my will, but yours be done. And if there's no other way, Father, for me to know you, for me to grow in you, for me to get where you've called me to To embrace the cross is not a call to passivity. It's not just saying, oh, well, come what may, I guess there's nothing I can do about it, and so I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to, whatever happens, happens. I'm not dealing with this. That's what the rest of the disciples did. What were they doing while Jesus was agonizing, getting ready? They were sleeping. And that's not what the call of the cross, it doesn't mean to embrace it. Now, what does that mean, to sleep through the cross? Well, some people do it by medicating. Some people do it by just detaching. Some people do it just by running away. They just, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to, I'm going to distract myself. I'll take drugs. I'll drink my way through this, but I'm not dealing with it. I'm not doing it. That's passivity. That's not embracing the cross. The cross is scary. Don't sleep. Here's the deal. There's a work that needs to be done in our life. There's a work of weakness and blindness and pride that can only be rooted. All the cross is to embrace. The call of the cross is also then, all these words are going to rhyme. I know that's corny, preacher stuff, but it helps remembering, right? To face it means now I'm going to follow through. And that's exactly what Jesus did. 
Jesus left the garden in handcuffs and he stood trial before Pilate and then Herod and then Pilate again. And he had to bear the reproach, the abuse, and the shame of people that didn't matter, that is the unnamed soldiers, and then the accusations and the condemnation of those people that did matter, the authorities that had the ability to release him or to set him free. And Jesus went through it, maintaining his witness, his integrity, the purpose of the Father's will, and he did not use his powers to make it easier or to eliminate himself or remove himself from having to go through it all. He faced every single bit of it, all of it, he took it all. And so what does it mean for you and I to face the cross? It means that when you go through the suffering, the season of difficulty that God has prescribed in your life, that you embrace the shame, the humiliation, the mockery, and the disrespect that comes because of it. It means that you're going to go through things in your life, and there's going to be people that you know behind the scenes are talking about you that are gossiping about you. They're saying, did you hear about so-and-so's family situation? Did you hear what they're going through? You're going to face people that are going to sit down with you, and they're going to be well-meaning people that you wish you could throw a hammer at them. And they're going to say, you know, you're probably going through this because, I, I'm just telling you this because I love you, but because you let your kids watch Disney movies, that's why this is happening to you. And, you know, and, 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 and you just got to, you understand. You're going to have to listen to people that say, you're going through this right now because you, you eat too much sugar. It's sugar's fault. You know, and, and if you had just, you're going to have to listen to that. You're going to have to know that people are sitting somewhere and they're saying, now we know what it was really like in their house. And now we know what was really going on behind picture-perfect doors. And you're going to have to deal with all of that. Remember the book of Job? I hate to bring it up, but I don't think you can preach a sermon on the cross without referencing Job many times throughout it. I heard someone say recently that reading the book of Job is like walking through a Christian bookstore. And there's a lot of truth in that, you know, because Job was going through this awful time that he could make no sense of. It was just the cross in every way, shape, and form. And he had these three well-meaning friends. And they were excellent for like seven days because they said nothing. They just sat with him. But it was all downhill from there. And they began to give him every cliched reason why he was going through what he was going through to the point where God had to tell him to stop. It was that painful. And to face it means that we go through all of that, we receive it, and we do it with quiet trust, maintaining our daily call. We do it in the integrity of our heart and we do it fiercely defensive of the Father's honor. We do not hold God hostage to our devotion waiting for better circumstances. Well, God, if you want me to read my Bible today, if you want me to pray, if you want me to maintain my Christian profession, then you change these circumstances. No, 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 no. That's not facing the cross. That's resisting. It's not following through. Interesting that there's a great contrast because while Jesus was telling the whole truth in his trial, even though it was going to end in his condemnation, Peter and the rest of the disciples were telling an easy lie, denying that they even knew him in order to make it easier for themselves. To face it means that you go through it fully, believing in the goodness of God in spite of the badness of the feeling. Now, I want to point this out, and then we'll have our final two points. But number one is this. Jesus aced it. All right, so first of all, we embrace it, then we face it, realize that Jesus aced it. When he said, it is finished, he had perfectly completed and perfectly drank the entirety of what it was that was asked of him to drink. I want to read you a verse from Isaiah chapter 51. It says, thus says the Lord your God, the God that pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury, you shall no more drink it again. God is saying there that he took the cup of filth and disgust out of the hand of humanity, and that is the very cup that was handed to Jesus, and he drank it all the way to the dregs, meaning Jesus embraced fully and perfectly 
the cross that was set before him and he aced it absolutely and completely when he said, it is finished. Now, the reason I point that out is this, is because there is no one on the face of the planet, either up to this point, nor will there ever be into the future that will be able to claim that they aced their encounter with the cross. Every single one of us falls short in some way. Either we don't embrace it right, or we don't face it right, or, or we quit, or we run, or something goes, goes massively awry. But Jesus alone aced it, and that was critical, because that's what purchased your salvation and mine. That's why it says in John chapter 19, verse 17, again in the New Living Translation, I love it, it says that he bore his cross or carried his cross by himself. He did it alone. I love the fact that Simon Cyrene of Cyrene came under it with him for a season because that's what it's like for us. We embrace a cross, but it's nothing like what Jesus embraced. He alone did that once and forever, and he's the only one that will ever ace it completely. It was his cross. Well, moving forward, the call of the cross, not just to embrace it, not just to face it, but listen, number three is take your place in it. Because you can't ace it, and Jesus knew that, God knew that, what he calls us to is to take our place in Christ's cross. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. I want you to listen to the way Paul describes what this means to take your place in the cross. He says this, he says, knowing that a man is not justified, that means made righteous before God, by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law. We are not justified by keeping good deeds. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. He's just saying there, if you want to lean upon your own cross as your means of salvation, well, I deserve heaven because I suffered for Christ. He's saying you're going to be found a sinner because you're not perfect like Jesus was. With Christ. In other words, I do not rely upon my own ability to pay the penalty for my own sins. That's not what the cross represents. I am joined with him. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I take my place in his cross and he has taken a place inside my life and that is the life that I now live. I have lost my identity and I now am one with him. I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. We do not... to partake in what Jesus already did for us. We take our place in Christ. That's salvation. That's where transformation takes place. That's where we fellowship with him and identify with him in fellowship of suffering is in his cross. It's one and the same. We take I'm sorry, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter. Did strengthen your brothers.
Peter was already converted. So what does Jesus mean when in his life? Now I want you to listen to what Peter said again. Never never no never is that going to happen to me in my life I will never do that all these peasants peasant disciples deny you I'm not never no never never That never happened to me. I know how to raise my kids. Never, no, never will I be one of those people that has a package from Amazon Prime on their porch every day. Those materialistic heathens, the United States of America, never, no, never would I be the one who's constantly ordering and purchasing things that way so easily and so wonderfully and conveniently. Never, no, never will I be the one who's endlessly scrolling the screen of a smartphone. Never, no, never will that happen in my life. Never, no, never would I go to that church that uses contemporary lighting and drums and songs in their worship and sings from those heathen bands that sometimes profess Jesus and sometimes we don't know what. Never, no, never would I go to that church. Never, no, never. Well, I divorce. I've seen what it does, and I know how to love a person. Never, no, never would that happen to me. Never, no, never would I fall back into that sin that Jesus saved me from. Never, no, never will I drink again from that filth cup that he saved me out of. Never, no, never will I stumble. Have you ever said never, no, never, only to find that before the rooster crows... You guys understand. See, Peter thought something about himself that Jesus saw right through and knew that it wasn't entirely true, not even partially true. In fact, Peter failed quite quickly in the thing. But I want you to understand that there is something painfully wonderful that happens when we fail in our never-no-nevers. There is a parable that Jesus told. It's only found in Luke's Gospel. I've thought about actually doing a message series called Only In and, and looking at some of, the, some of the passages that are only in one gospel because sometimes they're so amazingly insightful. But this is one of those passages. It's in Luke chapter 15 and 16. The parable is actually in Luke chapter 16. And it's a parable that you cannot understand. I know that you cannot fully understand this parable until you have failed in your never, no, never. It's the parable of the unjust steward. And Jesus tells this story, and he says that there was this man who was a steward. He was an accountant, basically, for a rich man. And he was accused to the rich man that he had been unfaithful in his accounting practices. And so the rich man looks into the books, and he realizes that the accusation is actually true, and he fires the accountant. He says that you can no longer be the steward because of these things. And this man realizes all of a sudden that he who was over all of these people that owed money to their boss, to his boss, now all of a sudden he was thrown out of this position of highness and he finds himself cast down to the ground underneath. This man who didn't think that he was indebted now finds himself fired and removed from his position. And so he begins to counsel with himself, like you would if you lost a job. He says, well, I don't want to dig. 
and I'm ashamed to beg, he says, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to go to the people that owe my boss money, and I am going to lighten the load for them a little bit. And so he goes to one, and he says, hey, how much do you owe my boss? And the guy says, I owe him 80 bushels of wheat. And the guy says, I'll tell you what, quickly sit down, write out a check for 40 bushels, and we'll call it even. We'll wipe the books right there, and you can be off the hook for 40 instead of 80. How's that? Can you pay now? And the guy says, you're kidding me, right? Yeah. He whips out his checkbook. He writes the check. Then he goes to another one, and he says, how much do you owe? And he says, oh, I owe a certain amount of oil. And he says, tell you what, write out 60% of it. Just write a check right now, and we'll call it free and clear. Now, you think, this guy's getting worse. First, he was unfaithful. Now, he's taking money that shouldn't go to his boss. You think, this guy's going to get killed. He's going to be hung. But you know what happens? And this is the part that's so amazing. I love Jesus. I love the Bible. Is that Jesus says that the boss, the rich man, he comes to this accountant and he commends him. He says, you have done wisely. And all of a sudden, there's a big record scratch. You go, wait a minute. What do you mean he did wisely? Why is he being commended by the boss who just lost money because first he was unfaithful and now he's letting people off the hook? And then Jesus, I, what in the world? Listen, I want you to understand something. That parable is a parable about grace. Debt in the New Testament is always a symbol of sin. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, say, forgive us our debts, our sins, as we forgive those who are indebted or have sinned against us. Now, here's how that unpacks. The accountant is you and me. The rich man is the father. And he has given us a stewardship, a calling, a grace, this amazing privilege to be in his kingdom and to be in his family. And we come to a point where we're saying, I'm so faithful, and we're looking down at everybody else, all the other servants, all the other peasants. We say, look at them. Look at, how, look at the, the compromise in their life. Look at how weak their devotion is. Look how infrequently they read their Bible. Look at the way they deal with their family. Look how selfish they are. I'm never, no, never. I'm not that. I'm never going to do that. And then we find that we stumble in our never, no, never. Where we thought we were so strong, all of a sudden we find that we're not as strong as we think we were. And maybe it comes even to the point of exposure where someone begins to see the emperor's clothes. Or maybe it comes in the form of a nudge from the Holy Spirit and we hear from the voice of the Father himself say, Hey, 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 remember what I did for you? You're disqualified. Wait, what? Yeah, you, you can know. Now listen, he's not disqualifying you. He's revealing something to you. He's letting you know that you're not as faithful as you think you are. And if you've ever been in that place, and I can tell you that I have been in that place, where the nudge of the Holy Spirit has said, hey, Mr. Self-Righteous, Mr. Pharisee who's holier than everybody else, Mr. Pastor who's so faithful to the Bible and looks down at all the other pastors who do things the best way they know how, but not as good as you, disqualified. And all of a sudden you go, wait, what? And all of a sudden this amazing thing happens. Because the people that you thought were way less than you, now you find that you need them. And there's a flip. All of a sudden that person that you thought didn't have it all together like you, you realize maybe they've got it together a little bit better than you thought. Maybe even a little better than, than, than you. And you're cut down a few notches. And like Peter, you hear the cock crow and you go out and you weep bitterly and you realize that you need the cross as much as he needs the cross, as much as they need the cross, and that the ground is perfectly level at the foot of the cross. And the call of the cross is that you begin to show grace with the people that you think don't deserve it or aren't as good as you or aren't as strong as you because you know what? They probably are. And if it wasn't for the grace of Christ and the fact that he aced what you and I can only at best take our place in, you find that I need his grace and I better show his grace to other people. The call of the cross 
is to show the grace of the cross. There is not a more powerful concept, instrument, or event that can happen in your life than that you would come to the place where he puts you face to face with the cross. And he says, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Because it's there at the cross that you find that his grace goes way further than the strength of your devotion. That his forgiveness goes much further than the shame of your sin. And where he doesn't go through what he's going through, and he said it hurts more than it hurt when my mother died. He said, I hate even hearing myself say that, but I've never felt pain like this right now in my heart. He said, but I've never felt more close to God in my life than what I have as I've been going through this. The cross can be an amazingly painful thing, but it produces a weight of glory and a knowledge of God that can come no other way than to know the fellowship of his sufferings and the way that he meets with you in it and the way that he sustains you through it. The cross. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you you speak, the way that you move. We thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. We thank you for your wisdom, Lord, that you know what we need. And we ask tonight, Lord, as we consider these things, that whatever it is, Lord, that we're facing, whatever it is that maybe we're going through, whatever it is that's coming, give us the grace to know how to embrace it, to face it, to take our place in it, and to show the grace of it. Lord, that we might identify perfectly with you. Understand this, you that are hearing the sound of my voice right now, is that the path of blessing and the path of purpose and the path to life and the path to knowing God passes directly through a place where there is a cross. And like Simon of Cyrene, there will be a season where each of us will carry that in God's wisdom and his purpose. But know that it is not to destroy you. And you may be facing unimaginable pain right now in some things that you're going through. But know that God's will and intent is only good. It's designed to be hard. There will be questions. But you lean on him in the middle of it. And know that he is for you and not against you. And remember the words of the Apostle Paul. He said in Romans 8 verse 28. He said, for I perceive, I think actually it's 8.17 that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. He has glory in plan for our future. We're going to close right now. I want to sing that song, The Blessing Over You. We love you. We miss you. We know that God's intent and goodwill for your life is to bless you. And so as we close the service, would you guys maybe where you are right now, lift your hands. Maybe you want to stand in your place and just receive, receive this from God like rain upon your soul. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.